and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. And he is also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Yeah. Yes, you too. Great to be here. Great to be back again. Uh, I would like to try and continue to work through some emails in our inbox, Father. And we had a uh, bit of a response to our previous program uh, from last week where we talked a lot about the Took bishops and uh, some of the consecrations that happened with uh, Bishop Took. And we had a viewer who wrote in and said, For the good of the faithful... Why can't you reach out to these different Sedevacantist groups and somehow conditionally ordain or consecrate each other? St. Paul, I think, would make a plea something like this. He says, I am not of the CMRI or SSPV or SSPX. I am of Christ. And then he closes, Father, by saying, maybe what we need is some good old-fashioned Christian persecution to prove who is of Christ. Father, how would you respond to that email? Well, it's not as though that hadn't been suggested before by people. And uh, unfortunately, well, fortunately or unfortunately, it simply would not work. It's just impossible. You can't. Um, again, we, we don't agree uh, on some very serious theological points here. Um, we may all agree in saying that uh, the Catechism of the Council of Trent is the standard of our faith, right? and uh, the other truly Catholic catechisms, we may all say we agree in faith, and we may say, yes, we all want the same traditional Latin Mass of the Roman Rite and the traditional sacraments, and we all agree on that, the worship. And we would all agree on saying we, we follow Catholic tradition, but the trouble is that not all of us do. I mean, there are groups that simply do not actually follow Catholic tradition. Uh, among them are the Tooks. So how could we possibly, uh, you know, just go ahead and consecrate whoever they would send us, whoever they chose to consecrate, when we're saying the whole, well, not the whole problem, but much of the problem is they've consecrated unworthy people. Uh, those we think that the church would not consider to be, you know, worthy candidates for the Episcopacy. So how are we just supposed to overlook that and say, well, let's just consecrate each other and, and uh, so we can all say that we're all equally valid, or <laughs> some would say equally invalid, but so that we're all, we're all happy that everybody else is valid. But the point is whether, not whether they should be valid, whether they should be bishops at all, and whether they're actually standing for Catholic tradition or not. I mean, this is the issue. So there are some very fundamental issues that would have to be taken care of. Besides, when you talk about, you know, uh, representatives of the various different groups consecrating each other. Well, that's exactly what the schismatic old Catholics do. Um, that's what, uh, you know, just the various uh, schismatic churches have done with the Orthodox going back hundreds of years, uh, kind of having the merry-go-round of consecrating each other. And um, it, it's kind of a, well, it's, it's not only a scandal, but it's sacrilegious, too. Yes. Uh, it's just out of the question to do something like that, clearly. Um, but um, with regard to the, the latter question there, he, well, he mentions uh, St. Paul would say, I'm not of token, I'm not of, uh, you know, uh, whatever. Um, and, uh, but uh, the, the problem we're dealing with here is um, 
that is not the, the, the same issue. We know we're all of Christ, and we have to be all of Christ, but there's a dispute among them what is actually uh, truly a matter of following Christ, following the guidance of the Holy Ghost, and following Catholic tradition, being loyal and being uh, faithful to it. So there are some fundamental questions that have to be answered, because there clearly there are those who are following Catholic tradition. Clearly there are those who are not. Okay. Um, and uh, I forget, what was the last statement that was made there? He talked about needing a, a uh, Christian oh, good, persecution. Oh, good old Christian persecution. Yeah. Did he say good old Christian persecution? That's, that's an interesting way of putting it. Good old Christian persecution. Well, um, I think that there was certainly going to be Christian persecution coming. I think it's already in the process, in the works right now. Uh, will that uh, prove anything? Well, yes, I think it will prove who was has the grace of God to persevere in the faith. Um, but again, um, you know, ultimately, as far as you know, what what is going to prevail is in God's is in God's hands. And so, uh, you know, I, I don't know that we really need good old Christian persecution to make what make things clear as to where we find Catholic tradition and where we don't among the different groups claiming to be traditional. Mm -hmm. I think it's very clear, for example, that you cannot, in the name of Catholic tradition, consecrate non-Catholics as bishops. And it's very clearly a matter of Catholic tradition that such a, such a thing would be condemned, and always has been condemned, right? <clears throat> and those who would try to justify it as kind of their, their starting point and foundational point in, in, in their battle for Catholic tradition, uh, uh, obviously they're, they're on the wrong track. I don't think we need good old Christian persecution to make that clear. So, um, <clears throat> although I, I do agree that uh, sometimes you need the, the winnowing to separate the chaff from the, from the wheat, right? Um, I, don't, I don't think we really need that Christian persecution to figure out exactly what qualifies as Catholic tradition and what does not in cases before us today. But um, certainly uh, the persecution will uh, reveal who is motivated by a genuine love for our Lord mm -hmm. and, and fidelity to him, uh, and who will cooperate with the grace that God gives to persevere in mm -hmm. faith and hope and charity. Mm -hmm. so. Father, with this idea of kind of mutually consecrating each other, we hear this line of thinking a lot. I remember um, we talked some time ago about this, this rally cry that was going around of uniting the clans, uh, mm -hmm. where, you know, why, where we hear this idea a lot, why can't we all just, just get along and... Uh, and uh, work out our problems with each other. But, Father, do you think that's some kind of easy cop-out or just some kind of euphemism for us to give up our principles and not actually hold fast to any kind of Catholic tradi traditional Catholic principles? Well, I mean, uniting the clans could be understood in the ecumenical sense of the Novus Ordo, even. You know, let's get all these Christian churches together, all those who invoke the name of Christ, regardless of what they believe, uh, the Arian heretics had a devotion to a, a certain Christ who is not the Son of God, not, not the second person of the Blessed Trinity, not divine. But if they invoke the name of Christ, well, let's get together with them anyway. I mean, you, you could take that in, a, in an ecumenical sense of the, of the modernists in the Novus Ordo. Uh, 
Uh, it is very simplistic to say, let's unite the clans. Um, um, and as you say, if, if the idea is, let's, let's forget what divides us and let's just concentrate on what unites us, again, that can be understood very easily in a modernist sense. Because what we disagree about could be very, very significant, could be very important, and uh, needs to be resolved. Uh, you know, in matters of faith and, and theology. So, um, yes, I don't, I don't think that cry of unite the clans has really accomplished a great deal, precisely uh, because I think people realize, no, there, there are some significant issues here as to, again, you know, what, what constitutes fidelity to Catholic tradition and what does not. And uh, here you have... The real problem time comes down with, with this. There are those who compromise with the modernists. And they will compromise with modernism by abandoning Catholic tradition for the sake of some, some expediency, you know, for the sake of gaining something, you know, for the sake of having access to the Took bishops, for example. Let's overlook the fact that he consecrated non-Catholics and even men who were into the occult. Let's just overlook that and, and pretend that that didn't happen. It just goes away and we'll uh, take advantage of having, you know, some one of the myriad of bishops that took and his followers have consecrated. One of them might be acceptable. Let's latch on to him and go from there. But that is not, that's just not being faithful to Catholic tradition. Sorry. It's not. And so, um, but I see that as a compromise with the Novus Ordo. I mean, if, if a Novus Ordo bishop would turn around and start consecrating non-Catholics as bishops, these very people who support Archbishop Took and follow Took would be against it. Absolutely, they would condemn it. They'd say, oh, look, what doesn't that prove, that's not Catholic, doesn't it prove that? But here, you know, in their own, in their own pedigree, they have Archbishop Took behind there who did this. And they say, no, it doesn't speak about his mental competency in any way. And no, it has nothing to do with his Catholicity. And no, the fact that the church excommunicated uh, for doing that, that doesn't have anything to do with this, that, that there's no bearing on this case, right? So I consider them actually to be, to be compromising the faith uh, in the direction of modernism. Um, you know, we talked about the Society of St. Pius X, and I, again, I think there are compromises they have made and positions they've taken that are, I believe, a compromise with modernism. I think they are kind of buying into the Francis papacy in the sense that they're altering the, the concept of the papacy in order to accommodate Francis. That you can have a, a pope, as they absolutely say Francis is, it must be, and you can't even doubt that he is, but no, we don't have to actually do anything he says. What does that say about the papacy itself? And so I, I consider that to be kind of a compromise with the modernist concept of doing away with the papacy as we know it, as Catholics believe it to be. And uh, to accommodate the papacy to Francis and his uh, modernism, and basically, essentially, it just does away with the papacy. Um, we can't do that in good conscience, so... So, um, anyway, uh, what can I say more than that right now? I think okay. I've said enough. But thank you. All right, <clears throat> then uh, we have another topic. Father 
Uh, I had a viewer write in and asks if a couple in uh, if a couple is in mortal sin while receiving the sacraments of matrimony, would it make the sacrament null and void? Would it mean they are not married since they were in mortal sin while the marriage took place? No, it would mean that they received the sacrament sacrilegiously and they would be adding to the mortal sin uh, another that is the sin of sacrilege, which might be actually the greatest sin of all their mortal sins, the sacrilegious reception of a sacrament of the living, which is the sacrament of matrimony. If one or the other was in the state of mortal sin, it would be uh, sacrilegious for the one in the state of mortal sin. Uh, if they're both in the state of mortal sin, they'd both be committing sacrilege. But it would not affect the validity. Uh, the only thing that would affect the validity is if they were un incapable of marrying, for example, if one or the other was married to another person validly at the time, a li another living person, and actually another living spouse, then they couldn't take a second validly, right? For example, um, or if, if there was some defect in their consent, if they had had the idea, well, I'll try marrying this person and see how it works out, and if it doesn't work, I'll go find somebody else to marry. If they come down the aisle with that intention, then there's no marriage, it's null and void, right? Um, now, um, imagine, though, if it were the other way, in other words, this, their person asks, would mortal sin invalidate the marriage? Uh, imagine what that would do to the sacrament of matrimony if uh, two people, you know, stand there before the altar, pronounce marriage vows, and each one is wondering, is the other person in the state of mortal sin or not? How do I even know? And how would I know if they are in the state of mortal sin, then if my marriage is even valid, you know? Um, the church would not uh, let that happen. Christ would not let that happen. So, no, the state of mortal sin does not invalidate a marriage, uh, but it would render it sacrilegious. So when the parties go to confession, receive absolution, uh, return to the state of grace, then they would, it's not as though they would suddenly be validly married at that point, because they are validly married when they made their marriage vows and they meant them. But they would receive then the graces of the sacrament. Uh, when they return to the state of sanctifying grace. Okay. Priests should admonish those who are going to be married, though, that it is the sacrament of the living, and it would be sacrilegious for them to be married in the state of mortal sin. And the priest should make uh, the sacrament of penance available to the, the couple getting married, the bride and groom, um, certainly right up to the day of the rehearsal, including rehearsal, you know, just to let them know that... Uh, you know, the, the confessional is, is available for them just to give them every opportunity to receive in the state of grace. And, I mean, the, the wise, prudent Catholic couple would not wait that long and say, well, okay, if I'm in the state of mortal sin, I'll wait till the marriage rehearsal, see if I can get the priest to hear my confession and be absolved. But the wise Catholic couple would say, uh, we've been living in the state of grace throughout our courtship, uh, mindful of the laws of God and uh, our love for each other, body and soul, taking good care of each other, body and soul, all this time. But we want to 
but it will clear in our in our hearts and our souls uh, any obstacles uh, that may stand against God's grace. We want to be as as perfectly of you know representative of, of, of good catholics and the good catholic husband and the good catholic wife the good catholic father and the good catholic mother we aim to be and so we want to go to confession regardless just to gain the graces and to bring them those graces up the aisle with us when we make our marriage vows so a, a couple that let's say takes advantage of the opportunity during the marriage rehearsal <clears throat> to go to confession is not announcing to the world well, you know, we're in the state of mortal sin, so we better get ourselves to the confessional before we get married. What they're saying is, <clears throat> we value the sacrament, and we want to be as well prepared as we possibly can to make the marriage vows as generously and as lovingly as possible, and as worthily as possible. And that's very important. Yes. Obviously. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, well, another question about marriage, Father. Um, just generally speaking, could you... Um, <clears throat> Could you explain the criteria that must be met for a Catholic to, for a Catholic and a Protestant to be validly married? What must they do to be validly married? A Catholic and a Protestant. Well, see, there you have this, uh, mixed religion, right? And uh, the um, that's a that is a uh, an impediment. Okay. Now, a Catholic and a Protestant could be validly married without a dispensation. Uh, but it would be illicit, it would be a, it would be a crime, right? The church says there's an impediment and uh, a, not an invalidating or an, uh, I'm trying to use the expression that people would recognize in English here, not an invalidating impediment, um, but it would make their marriage illegitimate. They would need a dispensation from the church in order to be allowed to marry to each other in the church, uh, going on the basis that Protestants as such believe in the sacrament of baptism. Uh, and there is some hope that the Protestants could actually be validly baptized, right? Mm -hmm. If it were clear that a Catholic were trying to marry uh, someone who comes from a, a cult that does not recognize baptism, does not recognize Christ at all, then that would be an invalidating impediment to marry them. Right? Uh, they would need a dispensation from the church too. It's a more serious uh, dispensation, obviously. Marrying someone who is not baptized doesn't even believe in baptism. But the church recognizes that there are problems associated with a Catholic marrying a non-Catholic, whether it be a non-Catholic Protestant invokes the name of Christ, believes in baptism, actually underwent Protestant baptism, and or a Catholic marrying a, a Muslim or a Jew or someone like that who doesn't believe in Christ and doesn't believe in baptism and makes no pretense of being baptized whatsoever. Uh, the church distinguishes between the two. Why? <clears throat> well, the church says if, if a Catholic marries a non-Catholic, but that non-Catholic is actually a validly baptized Protestant, the church recognizes that can be, then that would actually be a sacramental marriage between two baptized persons. It would be the sacrament of matrimony, curiously enough. Uh, if, it, if a Catholic married someone who is not validly baptized, that would not be the sacrament of matrimony, of course, because 
If you're not validly baptized, you can't receive a sacrament. In this case, it's two, the two of them have to confer the sacrament on each other. And the non-baptized person can't receive a sacrament. So, uh, in any case, the church does distinguish between the impediments because it distinguishes between the, the two different circumstances. Nonetheless, the church recognizes the dangers here. I mean, if you're marrying a Protestant, you have to ask the Protestant if he or she believes in the indissolubility of the marriage bond. You know, as many Protestants believe in divorce. So if you walked down the aisle to pronounce marriage vows with a, even a validly baptized Protestant, but one who believed in divorce and had the idea, well, this is a trial marriage. We'll see how it works. And um, if it doesn't work, I'll just uh, divorce and find another, another wife or another husband. That would invalidate the marriage from the, from the beginning, obviously. I mean, it, was, it couldn't be valid with that intention. Um, even though one might pronounce the, the marriage vows uh, with great, you know, uh, uh, enthusiasm <laughs> and exactness, it wouldn't make them valid if the person did not have the, the necessary intention. <clears throat> um, so, uh, you know, first of all, you'd need, you'd need a, a dispensation of the church in order to do that. You'd have to be sure because you fill out the marriage investigation form with, and then swear to the truth of it, you'd have to be sure that the Protestant acknowledges the indissolubility and the exclusive um, character of the relationship, of the marriage bond, the marriage bond, okay? That it's exclusive of any other romantic relationship, and it also is uh, permanent, or I say lifelong, okay, as long as they both live. Um, so uh, anyway, you know, you'd have to have that all settled before you could even agree to, you know, basically um, start making practical plans for the marriage, you know, arrange for it. And um, so in any case, but then of course, you know, you'd have to have a Catholic priest present to, to witness the marriage. Um, and... Um, the uh, you know in the tr traditional sense the Catholic priest would be authorized under the circumstances today though um, you know you might say well uh, gee I have to be authorized that means in the eyes of the of the Novus Ordo I have to have a priest that they approve of the trouble is the priests they approve of are modern you know they're they are presenting modernism as though it were the Catholic Catholic religion and it's not. So all of modernism and all of the Novus Ordo, therefore, is actually based upon a falsehood uh, that um, modernism is Catholicism and the Novus Ordo is the Catholic religion, which it is not. So you, you couldn't really go to a, an authorized priest as such who's practicing the Novus Ordo. And why would you want to anyway? Because they're annulling tens of thousands of their own marriages every year. And even Francis has come out publicly and announced to his own priests in Rome that in his estimation, the vast majority of their own marriages are invalid. So why would one place any importance on going to a, an authorized Novus Ordo priest to get married as though that, as though that were something important? <laughs> the important thing is to get married as a Catholic in a Catholic church where they practice the Catholic faith with the Catholic religion. And I'm talking about 
the traditional Catholic faith and the traditional Catholic religion. So they should find out a traditional Catholic priest who does not compromise, and they should ask him to to witness their marriage vows. Mm-hmm. And that would be essential, right, Father? They, they could not be married without... Well, the Church does provide in, in mission territories where they wouldn't see a priest for a month right. or more uh, reasonably that they could get together with what is actually the two essential witnesses of the marriage vows, who, who could testify that they made their marriage vows, made them correctly, and um, to all, you know, as far as humanly possible to tell, they, they intended they intended to enter truly a Catholic marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be, again, an essential, an essential requirement that there be the two witnesses who could testify that the marriage vows were pronounced uh, properly and sincerely. Mm-hmm. But they, a, a Catholic could never get married in front of a justice of the peace or anything? Never validly, no. Okay. No. A Catholic could not make that pretense of getting married before a justice of the peace, as though the justice of the peace had any really uh, authority over Catholics to marry them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and if a Catholic tried to get married before a Protestant minister, uh, not only would the marriage be invalid, but they'd be excommunicated. For the Communicatio and Sacris, in pretending that the Protestant minister had some kind of a true religion and uh, represented truly the authority of God, the authority of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are pretty severe laws of the church condemning that, okay. Okay. obviously. And, and Father, that, that applies also if um, I've heard, heard of this, this case before, where some will, will say that if there's a Catholic and a Protestant getting married, okay, they can have the, the, the Catholic marriage ceremony first, but then once they have the Catholic marriage ceremony, they're validly married, then to... Um, to satisfy the Protestant member, they can go and have some kind of Protestant service in the in the Protestant church because they were validly married already in the Catholic church. No, no, no that, is, that is condemned by the law of the church. You can't do yeah. that. Okay. Can't pretend, right? Um, so. Okay, so. fair enough. All right, uh, then a, um, another question, Father. We had a viewer write in and ask, how should, how does the church treat children who are born out of wedlock? How does or how... How should the Not church? Yes. Well, um, treat them in the sense of like be mean to them or be kind to them. Or, uh, um, well, a child who is born out of wedlock. I mean, there's a there's a there was a social stigma in the old days. I mean, nowadays, everything, I suppose people would even boast about that. Nowadays, they're just so proud of their adulteries and their impurities, but. Uh, the fact is, the church laments the circumstances in which children are born illegitimately. The church obviously laments the fornication or the, the adultery, um, which, you know, produces the, um, this life. But the church always rejoices that God gives life and thanks God for giving life and values the life, every life that God gives. So, uh, the sin is the sin of the parents of that child, and the shame is theirs, and the scandal is their, is, is their doing. The child is as innocent or as guilty as any one of us with original sin, conceived with original sin, and need of baptism, and the, and the church um, wants to save that child, and uh, values the life of that child. 
as I say, you know, even though we see that the, the parents have indulged in, in mortal sin and made it very public, even, and maybe flaunting it, uh, the shame is theirs. And we can't do anything to indicate that we approve of what they did. At the same time, you know, let's say, um, you know, one has uh, relatives who did such things, or a relative who did something like that, and there's a child, but that might be your niece or your nephew who's born there. That might be your grandchild who's born there. And, you know, you, you love that child. And you see that child is in danger, especially if he's born to parents or she is born to parents who have no faith, no hope, no charity, no love for God, uh, such as to obey the commandments of God. And so that makes you even more concerned for the welfare of the child. And so the church would say, yes, uh, be kind to, be loving toward that child, be the best grandmother you can be, be the best, best uncle or aunt you can be, uh, whatever. But uh, you have to do that in such a way that you make it clear that you thank God for giving that life, but that you cannot approve of the manner in which we compelled God, as it were, to give that life. Because God gave us that power, actually, even under the most sinful circumstances of our choosing, God gave us that power to demand that he create a new soul. Uh, it's a great power, even over God himself, that God relinquished to us to be used responsibly. And when we use it selfishly, or use it selfishly, it's a terrible sin. Uh, for which God will hold us accountable. But uh, we pray that these children will become the saints necessary even to secure the graces for the salvation of their parents. There are some very famous illegitimate children <coughs> in history. I mean, Don Juan of Austria, the leader of the troops at the, the Battle of Lepanto, was illegitimately conceived. <coughs> he... Um, he therefore could not really accede to any throne that would have been his right uh, by, let's say, royal noble birth. Uh, G.K. Chesterton alludes to that in his poem Lepanto, talking about the uh, uh, Don Juan of Austria as uh, a half a tainted stall concerning his birth, you know, half. Half a tainted stall, I think he used the expression, as though his his birth was by law illegitimate, and therefore he could not accede to the throne of anything, right? Or the uh, uh, noble title, you know. Um, but you know, all all of Christians, well, certainly all Catholics everywhere, who are really Catholics, uh, thank God. That there was a Don Juan of Austria, who as a young man of what, 22, 23 years old maybe, uh, led the Christian troops in battle at Lepanto. So what a, what a life, you know. And yet, again, he lived uh, after Lepanto, he lived a very simple life and died a very simple death, like any peasant would, you know. So, but we do have every hope that he saved his soul. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what's important. So a child born out of wedlock like that should be loved and uh, even perhaps loved more according to the need they have 
of uh, that love and that guidance and that care, that they themselves would grow up to be the saints that their parents deprive their that child of having as his mother and father, and hopefully uh, even succeed in obtaining the graces necessary for the conversion and the salvation of the parents. They can do that. Yeah. That's okay. children. Okay. Well, uh, then let's change topics a little bit. Father, um, we had a viewer ask if you could talk about third orders and what is the benefit and what is the responsibility of, of joining a third order? Well, third orders were uh, devised pretty much in the Middle Ages, I think, originally. In fact, um, I mean, the, the brown scapular of Our Lady about Carmel was kind of in the direction of a third order that one would don the scapular as a kind of token of the Carmelite habit, right? And would participate in the, uh, the benefits of uh, being a member of the order, actually, by extension. There were certain requirements, spiritual requirements, of course. And uh, so the, the idea very much caught on during and after the Middle Ages. Um, there were certain lay, lay movements in Europe um, that uh, also fanned the flames of this idea that we would somehow be attached to the Franciscan order uh, as penitents and uh, like St. Francis. Some of the lay people got carried away and had to be disciplined by the church. Um, but nonetheless, the, the general idea of the laity somehow being able to participate in the spiritual benefits of a religious order such as the Franciscans or the Redemptorists or, uh, or uh, the Carmelites uh, certainly uh, became very popular and was actually encouraged by the members of those religious orders. Uh, to bring the lay people into, uh, in a sense, uh, trying to live uh, the religious life within the world, with the spirit of poverty, the spirit of chastity, the spirit of obedience, living in the world in this way, and uh, deriving uh, the benefits of the prayers of all the members of that religious order throughout the world. It was a great, great thing. Nowadays, of course, you know, you have the religious orders that have been Novus Ordoized. And although there are members of those religious orders who have the traditional faith in their hearts and are suffering mightily under the Novus Ordo and wish they knew what to do about it, maybe they feel prisoner, imprisoned by vows they made and kind of at a loss as to what to do. <laughs> I can appreciate that because... I mean, I was on the on the verge myself at one point, uh, very close to making, uh, just a matter of a, a couple of years away from making solemn vows, and not just three vows of poverty, chastity, obedience, but a fourth vow of stability to the house to which I belonged. <clears throat> and um, as it turns out, I realized I cannot make those vows sincerely under the circumstances because I reject the Novus Ordo. <clears throat> And, um, but there are those who, who are, were in vows when the changes came in, and they were tormented as to what do we do? You know, because you've made the vows, uh, and um, how do we now um, reconcile the vows we've made with actually departing from our religious order, the community life, and, and the obedience, and so on? Um, it was, in other words, for many people in that condition, 
it was a real dilemma for them. Of course, we would tell them, look, follow the faith, follow the faith, find where the faith is and follow the faith. That's what you have to do. Um, it wasn't that simple for many people, unfortunately. So I understand those who would like to join the third orders of, uh, of the Carmelites and so on these today might be tempted to sign on with that. But if they're practicing the Novus Order, and you're supposed to be benefiting, benefiting from the masses and so on, uh, the sacraments that are administered by the priests of the order, and these are all Novus Ordo masses. These are new order liturgies, and you wouldn't want that. Right. You know, as a traditional Catholic, you certainly wouldn't want that. It wouldn't want to not only be connected with it, you wouldn't want to support it in any way. Which is totally that would be totally antithetical to the whole idea of what the real traditional Carmelite order stands for. And um, so, anyway, um, if there are priests who um, of these religious orders who are truly traditional, and in fact, there was a, a priest that I knew of, we had a retreat once, uh, by, uh, given by a traditional Norbertine priest in Europe. He was a real traditional Norbertine priest. He held on to the old faith, and he paid a heavy price for it, but he stayed faithful to tradition and the real meaning of his vows. God bless his soul, and uh, God rest his soul. Now. Um, and could he have continued on the, the third order, uh, a third order? He could have. He could have, uh, you know, uh, asked God to give the graces, you know, to um, kind of uh, per per persevere and let uh, what should I say to, uh, uh, you know, and extend extend the benefits uh, to the laity and encourage them to live the ideals of that religious order. Uh, there might be some traditional Carmelites and some traditional Redemptorists in the world today who perhaps could do that. But if somebody were saying, well, I want to join a third order today, I would say, well, whatever you do, don't join a third order of a, uh, a religious order that has gone modernist in the new mass, new sacraments, new catechisms, and all the rest. Find a traditional priests who are members of the religious order and asked to be associated with through them, that you can really live truly the ideals of that order mm -hmm. as a layman in the world. Okay, that's fascinating. Thank you, Father. Uh, okay, another question. By the way, yes. if, one, Tom, if one looks in the old Catholic encyclopedia yes. uh, under the third orders, I think they'll find some very good information there. Yeah, they'll probably get a lot of their questions answered that I didn't answer just okay. now. Good deal. All right. Um, Father, a viewer of ours would like to know if blessed salt can be used to bless or protect your home or property. Should be. Mm -hmm. yeah. In fact, I mean, there's an old custom. Mostly, you see this in Europe. Something happened. They take some salt and throw it over their shoulder. as though the devil was behind them. <laughs> and that would drive him out. I mean, salt uh, is referred to in the in the sacred scripture. Our Lord refers to it. Right? You, you are the salt of the earth, right? You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt becomes an insipid, with what will it be salted? You know, our Lord refers to that. So, salt actually uh, was taken by the church as having a certain symbolic value of faith. You know, being uh, in the world and not of the world, like the salt was thought to be 
um, something special and um, symbolize. Our Lord cho chose oil and other material elements to symbolize spiritual things. Although oil was chosen to be the matter and the application of the oil chosen to be the matter of the sacrament of extra unction, salt was not chosen to be the, um, the matter of any sacrament by our Lord. Uh, nonetheless, the church has always used it um, for the sake of, uh, of blessing holy water. Uh, there's actually in the ceremony of making the holy water, blessing the water, <clears throat> there's the uh, exorcism of the salt, <clears throat> the blessing of the salt. Okay. Um, there's the the exorcism of the water, the blessing of the water. I mean, the, the distinct prayers of exorcism and a blessing for each of them. And then they are united, uh, a simple prayer, referring to the mixture of the two of them. And um, so salt is an essential component of that uh, ritual of, of making holy water. One could, uh, one could take that and sprinkle the salt around, even as one would take holy water and sprinkle the water, holy water around. Um, and, you know, some people say, well, you know, it's sacramental, so you wouldn't want it, uh, you know, if, if you would take a rosary, a blessed rosary, you wouldn't throw it on the floor. You wouldn't throw it on the ground and just say, oh, well, we'll just leave it there. You'd want to treat it with more respect than that, with that. But with holy water, you want to spread it everywhere. You know, you want it on the floor, ceiling, walls. <laughs> you want to make the holy water everywhere. And the same with the blessed salt. There's nothing, nothing wrong with sprinkling it around uh, outside the house, inside the house, and so on. <coughs> you just wanted to have the proper exorcism and blessing in order to do that. Mm -hmm. And blessed salt is also used in, um, I guess, not the actual sacrament of baptism, baptism, but in, the, in some of the rites. Yeah, there is in, in the actual rite of baptism. Mm -hmm. It features prominently very early on, and it symbolizes divine wisdom. There's actually a unique blessing for the salt given in baptism. Uh, that it would symbolize the, the divine wisdom. And you're uh, giving that uh, divine wisdom through uh, the virtue of faith into the, into the soul of that child. Where would one obtain blessed salt, Father? Have to buy salt and ask a priest to bless it, really. Just any regular, regular table salt? Well, I think you could. I, I've never, I mean, there's iodized salt, okay? I suppose most of what you'd buy today would be iodized salt, but mm -hmm. I mean, salt, uh, sodium chloride, whatever meets the, <laughs> the definition of salt could be blessed as salt and used. Okay. All right, that's great. Then um, another question, Father, this is actually from the same viewer, but she asks, um, how can a Catholic pray the exorcist prayer? for daily struggles with sins and obtaining and practicing most needed virtues? The exorcist the prayer. Exorcist well, there, there are multiple exorcist prayers. In chapter 11 of the, of the old Rituale, you find prayers of exorcism um, in Latin. Uh, there are translations, uh, for that matter, I think that would have come out in the 1960s. Um, into English, you see sometimes there are books of prayers of deliverance these days. You might have heard of those too, which are you know invocations of the divine power against demonic presence and influences. 
And um, I, I imagine there are a goodly number of these books, uh, Prayers of Deliver Deliverance. I don't know if any of them carry an imprimatur when the, at the time when the true church was <clears throat> was uh, requiring the imprimatur. So I haven't actually inspected them, although I, I have paged through them, and uh, some of the prayers I think uh, would be worthy prayers to offer. Right? Um, <clears throat> can a Catholic layperson who is not ordained as an exorcist, could such a person pray a prayer of exorcism? Not only can a Catholic layperson pray a prayer of exorcism, but in fact, all of the Catholic laypersons I know do regularly pray prayers of exorcism. The church actually leads them in praying a prayer of exorcism every time she has them pray the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel. Even the abbreviated prayer to St. Michael the Archangel that we all know is a prayer of exorcism. It's exactly that. It's asking... Uh, uh, the divine power of God working through the holy angel of St. Michael to once again drive Satan out, to drive him back, even to cast him back into hell. Not only him, but all the evil spirits who wander through the world seeking the ruin of souls. So that's pretty, that's quite a prayer of exorcism. <clears throat> so every time you're praying the prayer to St. Michael, the archangel that we all learn, uh, it has multiple various translations. Um, but they all essentially say the same thing, mean the same thing. You're praying a prayer of exorcism. Uh, to use that in conjunction with holy water would be very good. So one does not have to be an ordained exorcist in order to pray a prayer of exorcism. Uh, and the church encourages all of her faithful to pray that prayer. Um, obviously, you know, the exorcist is, is endowed by God through the church with a special status and a special special power, and the devil knows that. <clears throat> the devil recognizes when an exorcist, someone ordained exorcist, is there and is there to confront him. The devil knows that. The devil feels much more, shall we say, free to be a blowhard, <clears throat> right, uh, with people who are not exorcists because he feels he can intimidate them. And they do not have the power that an exorcist has over them. But when an exorcist who is ordained as an exorcist by the church and is empowered officially to confront him is present, the devil tends to recede, pull back, and try to hide himself because he knows the exorcist has, has power over him. <clears throat> but again, an answer to the question, one does not have to be an ordained exorcist to pray prayers of exorcism. Mm -hmm. Um, now, well, I have to be careful here because there, it's one thing to pray a prayer of exorcism in general, just to ask God to push the devil out of a situation and to offset his influence or quash his influence. Obviously, if there is a solemn exorcism, right, a formal exorcism <laughs> where you have somebody who is possessed, one would be uh, more than foolhardy. For try, to, to try to deal with that if you were not an ordained exorcist. And in the tra traditionally, even an ordained exorcist, a priest um, would have to be commissioned, authorized by his religious superior in order to undertake an exorcism like that. Because there you have a particularly malicious demon that has entrenched itself 
and not only one, but perhaps even legion of demons uh, that have entrenched themselves and seized a person, seized control. And that requires a, gr a great deal more power and influence and, uh, shall we say, holiness, really. Because <clears throat> if, if someone is not prepared to come after that devil or those devils, the devil can turn on him. We saw that happen in sacred scripture, right? The Acts of the Apostles. <clears throat> that there were those lay people who presumed to try to cast out devils in the name of Christ, even. And the devil said to them, well, Christ I acknowledge, Paul I know, but who are you? And the possessed person turned on them and just beat them up pretty badly. Right? <clears throat> so it's one thing to actually enter into a, a solemn or formal exorcism of someone who's possessed. No one should do that without very serious, uh, you know, necessary authorization right? <laughs> to do that and a lot of preparation. Um, but to pray a prayer of exorcism just to kind of push back the demonic influence that's certainly within the capacity of every Catholic. Okay, great. A uh, related question, Father, what is your view on generational curses? Well, I assume what they mean by that is that uh, there can be a, a curse put on a family and it carries down through generations. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I think that generally falls under the heading of diabolical oppression. Um, now, we saw that kind of oppression with St. John Vianney, with the devil oppressing him and tormenting him. We saw that, well, we didn't see it spoken of too openly in the life of St. John Bosco, but he did allude to it. He did give kind of oblique references to the fact that he also was attacked in this way. <laughs> and the devil can be kind of sicked on somebody in the sense that uh, a, a demon can be invoked by some corrupt soul on earth, and uh, actually through some malicious will, uh, you know, invoked and in, in, uh, basically assigned to attack somebody. You know, the Italians talk about the malocchio, the evil eye, right? Sometimes you find the, the corner to the, the red uh, uh, horn, you know, hanging around somebody's neck, supposed to Ward off the Malocchio and the curses and so on. They really believe in that, though. And there are various little rituals involving salt and pepper and so on that have kind of arisen in, in some Italian families going back generations. But, of course, uh, one can easily fall into the superstition, uh, you know, look at these things in a very superstitious way, which is very destructive. Um, but it is possible that... Um, some malicious character can invoke a, a demon to basically attacks an enemy and um, kind of, as they say, sick him on like a dog, like a rabid dog. And these demons are more than willing to hearken to that, you know, when they, when they, when they can, uh, when they have leave from God, they, they can attack somebody and they can uh, kind of pursue them pursue them down through generations, you know. I think there are exorcists who can bear witness to that, that they've actually encountered this type of thing <clears throat> with demons who um, have taken it upon themselves even to, uh, you know, 
pursue the, uh, to pursue out of their malice, you know, offspring going from one generation to another. But of course, again, any diabolical influence can be defeated. Uh, diabolical oppression, diabolical obsession, these things can be defeated. You know, when, a, when the demons say in an exorcism, uh, that is to say, possessing demons, when there's diabolical possession, when the demon, demons say, we suffer more here during the exorcism than we would in hell, <clears throat> you actually see a key, <clears throat> a little bit of light uh, shed on why they give up. Because when they're confronted with holy things, as they're not confronted in hell with anything holy, it makes them suffer. They're tormented by holy things. And when you confront them with holy things <clears throat> in an exorcism, they really do suffer more in being confronted with those holy things than they would in hell. And that actually pries their grip loose, little by little. You know, I mean, Father Amorth, in his book, An Exorcist Tells His Story, <clears throat> it recounts that happening to him that the demon said, we suffer more here than we would in hell. And Father Amorth asked him, well, why don't you just let go of this person and go back to hell then? Why stay here and suffer more? And their answer was truly demonic and malicious. The answer was, we, notice, plural, are here to make this person suffer. And so they are willing to suffer more to inflict suffering on another person. That's how just awful they are, you know? <clears throat> Their hatred is so unbounded. So, in any case, um, so, you know, when you confront the devil with, the, uh, when you confront de demons with holy things, it does make them suffer. And uh, their time of activity is limited. One of the things the exorcist always asks is, how long do you have, when will you depart? When will you depart? It's like they know when, when their days are up, when their time is, is, is out, and they have to leave, you know, curiously. But they're going to hang on for dear death until that last possible moment to make this person suffer. <clears throat> so yes, uh, the devil can be, can be made to let go. And when all is said and done, uh, it is not the exorcist who makes the devil leave. And even at that, the devil, the, the, uh, the, the exorcist himself is basically pulling a demon out, or demons out. And, but the person who is possessed, if it is possession that we're dealing with, has to want the demon out. So in a sense, he has to be pushing the demon out of him from the inside. If the possessed person does not will that demon to leave him, there's nothing the exorcist can do to pull him out of there, to extract him like some abscess tooth, you know. Um, <clears throat> no, there has to be the dead possessed person who wants to be delivered from that influence. And ultimately, though, um, the, the will of the demon is stronger in its malice than the possessed person's will, clearly, or even the exorcist will. There has to be the divine the divine power that comes to play through the angels, you know, St. Michael the Archangel, for example, has to come and he's the one who has to ultimately drive that demon out of there. But uh, 
It is possible to defeat them and to drive them out. And uh, prayer and penance, especially penance, um, uh, mortification, have an enormous power over, over the demons. In these things, they're confronted with a love for God, someone being motivated by a love for God. And if there's anything, if there's anything they can't stand, if there's anything they can't tolerate, it's that. Right? Seeing that love for God in another soul. Um, someone in, in, in the grace of God, loved by God, and who loves God in, in return. So, uh, anyway, I don't know if that answers the question. But I think so. <laughs> I think so. Uh, okay, well, Father, uh, anything else you'd like to add before we close tonight? Uh, yes, we, we are engaged in the kind of exorcism ourselves. But that's like the exorcism of, of the world, the exorcism of our country in particular. Our country is under attack from demons. The diabolical powers are at work in our country. They want to make our country a communist country, right? Um, all of this ultimately is part of the plan of an antichrist to come and to beguile mankind, <clears throat> present himself as its savior. <clears throat> and mankind, having rejected the true savior, is ripe for the picking, right? We see what's happening in our country now. And I'll just say it quite openly that um, the United States of America has a very special role to play in this. Um, and we see that in the plans of the one-worlders, the globalists, and, and, and so on. Um, because in America here, there's a certain resistance to... Um, to tyranny, okay? Unfortunately, we've lost a great deal of that because of sin, our own sins here in America. We've made our freedoms a cloak for malice in our abortions, in our divorces, in our adulteries, and all the other things that just cry to heaven for vengeance, evil things that we've done, right? And yet, there nonetheless is a something in us here that uh, makes us in America a, a, a particular obstacle so that America has to be demolished. And I use the word demolished, and I think that's what the Democrats are doing right now, quite frankly. I think the, Democratic, uh, the Democrats, if I can talk about them as a class, as a group, uh, the Democratic Party itself, I mean, you look at all of the all of the things going on in the, in the country right now under their auspices. Um, the fact that there really is no southern border to our country, basically. Um, we have this basically ongoing invasion day by day by day by day by day. And um, the supply chain disruption, uh, which is uh, affecting the goods, flow of goods in the country. Um, the trillions of dollars now we're printing to hand out to everyone. Um, and, I mean, the uh, transgenderism and all the rest that they're pushing, the abortions they're pushing, everything. That is not just a program uh, uh, of, and I use the word program advisedly, because it is their program. I mean, these things are not happening in spite of them. These things are happening because of them. They want these things to happen. They are behind these things. And even when they say, well, we're going to propose a solution to them, the solutions actually are ca calculated to make things worse, not better. Because what they really want to do 
is not just dismantle the United States of America. They want to demolish the United States of America. They want to demolish the United States of America to pave the way for their globalism and their new world order. You know, they call it the Great Reset or whatever else, you know. It all comes down to the same thing. Uh, they want to communize the world, and that will mean that in creating a one world uh, government, that then it can be handed over to the one world religion of the Antichrist. And uh, he will be in power. I fear that uh, they will stop at nothing in order to demolish. It's interesting. I mean, Democrat and demolish start with the same. Uh, <clears throat> you know, living up to their names. Uh, but it's demo, right? It's demo. They want to uh, demolish this country and uh, any resistance anywhere in the world to their plans. And... Um, we, we realize that it's a spiritual battle. It is a spiritual battle more than anything. This is why it's happening, because of sinfulness and mankind turning away from its true, the true God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and its, its true Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, defying him openly, brazenly defying him. Uh, Archbishop Vigano said it recently uh, very well, I think, uh, when he gave a talk, I, I think it was somehow published in Bern, Switzerland. I don't know that he was present there. But he, he said, look, if, if, you, if you are upset that your freedoms are being taken away, and by that you mean your freedom to abort your children, or to divorce your wives and your husbands, or to do this or to do this other evil thing, if you think that's a freedom to sin that, that you are all upset about losing, that they're taking this away, then that's not freedom at all. And you are going to suffer for that. That's why this is happening to you. But you have to realize your true liberty is not the liberty of perdition, as Pope Leo XIII said, but the liberty to be faithful to your responsibilities to Almighty God. And if, you're, if you are going to uh, campaign for and fight for those liberties, then God will support you in that fight and make you victorious. But he will not support you in, if you're fighting uh, for your liberties to be greedy and sinful and impure and uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? All the other evil things and gluttonous and so on. So, um, so this is what we, we have to purify our intentions here. That's why I say we need to um, practice our, our traditional Catholic faith wholeheartedly, not just outwardly, but inwardly, to be faithful to our Lord completely. That, and by that I mean be truly uh, believe our traditional Catholic faith uh, with all of our mind and love the traditional Catholic religion um, of our Lord Jesus Christ because it is what he's given us with all our hearts and be faithful, absolutely faithful to it. Uh, then we will be able to fight the good fight and, and win. Uh, there, there are actually three things that I'm very concerned about right now. If we don't do those things, if we don't purify our souls like the Maccabees of old before we go to fight the, try to fight the good fight, if we don't purify our hearts first, uh, I fear that um, things will even spiral out of control with re as far as the leftists go. Um, I mean, for example, here in our own country, 
We have uh, resident Biden who is hanging on to rationality by a thread. And um, um, at what point would the leftist decide that uh, removing him would be in their best interest? I mean, we know as Catholics, we would never, you know, stoop to murder, obviously, right? We're, we're, pro we're protesting the murders they're, they're committing against all those little babies. You know, we recognize that this is wrong. But the leftists don't have those same scruples. So if they saw that they would be better off uh, without him and make a martyr out of him and blame it on us and, you know, claim, oh, look, there's the insurrection again, right? Then they wouldn't hesitate to do so. I mean, am I defaming them by saying this? No, this is how leftists have acted throughout at least modern historical times. This is what they do. Uh, they look for whatever advantage they can get. And if it involves sacrificing one of their own, they have no hesitation about that because they have no value. They place no value on human life. Um, and uh, I mean, what kind of a brawl would that set up then? I mean, the next in line is Kamala Harris, then comes uh, Nancy Pelosi. And what kind of a catfight would that be, you know, as far as taking, trying to take control? So you see, we, we Catholics understanding these things and how leftists think and, and see what's lined up there, we need to be very concerned about that. We need to see the dangers involved. And we need to pray for the grace of God, okay? We really need to recognize the situation we're in here for what it really is and how precarious the situation is right now for our country, right? I mean, another aspect of the whole problem is this, that you have leaders of countries who actually have power um, over those countries, and if they start losing their grip, what do they have to do in order to consolidate their grip over that country, declare war? This is a standard operating procedure for leftists who want to be tyrants. Because when they declare war, they can declare martial law. And then anybody who opposes them is a traitor. Right? And then you have your insurrection again. Because anybody who opposes them in wartime is going to automatically be a very bad guy. Okay? Traitor to the nation and so on. And uh, if you have Xi Jinping over there in, in China, and they say he's in trouble now, and he realizes the same situation, that maybe his grip on power is loosening. It would be in his interest, perhaps, to declare war. So you get leaders of the two great powers who decide it's in their best interest of their, their consolidation and uh, their confirmation of their power to declare war, so they have their nations now under that grip. That's not a good combination. I think we, again, as especially as Catholics, we need to have... Uh, insights into these things uh, that enable us to see the precarious situation we're in and the whole world is in, notably our own country and our own people. And we need to, uh, recognizing the dangers here, we need to get on our knees and beg God, beg God to help us because it would be all too easy to make a mistake to make a tragic mistake, you know what I mean? And to uh, precipitate something that we'll all live to regret. We've got to be very, very careful about that. It is amazing to me, I think the, the grace of God has held people back from doing anything really foolhardy, right? 
But I think, um, you know, we all realize, though, that that, uh, there's a real danger there that uh, we need the wisdom of God guiding us through this, the wisdom of the Holy Ghost guiding us. And we'll, we'll find that at the altar. We'll find that in the sacraments. That's where we find that. Uh, we need our Blessed Mother. We need our Blessed Mother's hand. She is the patroness of the United States of America under the title of the Immaculate Conception. We need her guiding hand in all this uh, to see us through and make sure that whatever we do or whatever we don't do is my, motivated um, by divine wisdom and out of a real love for God. And that no matter what we have to suffer involved in this, we're offering it all to God rather than just complaining about it. Uh, whatever inconvenience or trouble or anxiety we may have, that we do not make, uh, do not endure any of this without offering it to God as a sacrifice and a plea to Him for mercy. Um, I hear a lot of complaining out there. I do a lot of complaining, I suppose, too. But again, I wish every one of those, um, every one of those complaints was accompanied by you know, an offering to God to please take this, what I can offer to as a sacrifice, uh, and, a, and a plea for mercy for God, for our country, for our people. So, Tom, God bless us. And um, we have a lot to be thankful for, mm-hmm. heaven knows. Yep, absolutely. Thank you for being here tonight, Father. Appreciate well, it. Sir, thank you. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.